Today we begin our Journey to the Cross series, which will ultimately take us to the climax of the gospel story when we celebrate the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ just two weeks from today. And during this series, we will be tracing uh, the events and looking at the events of Holy Week or Passion Week according to John's Gospel. And so I want to invite you this morning to take a Bible, to open up with me to John's Gospel, chapter 11. John chapter 11. John 11 is famous for the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five, which describes how Jesus was deeply moved as he encountered those that were mourning the loss of Lazarus. And if you know your Bible very well, you know that Jesus then proceeded to raise Lazarus from the dead, to call out to him, to come out of the cave or the tomb in which he'd been placed four days earlier and wrapped in grave clothes. In our passage for this morning, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45, comes right on the heels of that encounter. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. As you can imagine, when a man raises someone else from the dead, people start talking. I don't say that because I've witnessed such an encounter, but I can imagine the reaction that we would have if we did. We often see people or or hear about people or witness people who have been on life support for a few days in the best hospitals in the country. And when they come out of it, if they survive and, and come back off of life support, we count it as a miracle. Now, some people would certainly attribute that to, to simply modern medicine and the achievements and a accomplishments of men and women in that 
arena in recent years. But we as people of faith recognize that even in those circumstances, there's still a sovereign God who ultimately is responsible for healing. I say that to say, Lazarus was not on life support. His heart had stopped pumping blood. His lungs had stopped taking in oxygen. The resuscitation period was over. He was wrapped in grave clothes and placed in a tomb for four days. And those that witnessed this encounter knew that there was no doubt that a miracle had just taken place. Something spectacular, something unusual, something supernatural had just taken place. At the words of this man, Jesus. Now, I don't want to belabor the point, but how many of you have witnessed a bird flying into a window? Have I seen that before? Most of us, probably at some point or another. And I can remember several years ago when I was uh, working at the tennis center at the Birmingham Country Club, uh, hearing a loud thud behind me. And I turned around and noticed that a bird had gone straight into the huge glass windows that surround that pro shop and was now lying on its back on the deck that surrounded uh, the shop. And so I went over to that bird and I looked at it just laying there, lying there on its back, helpless, left for dead. And just a few moments later, the bird got up and flew away as if nothing had even happened. Amazing. But the reality is the bird wasn't dead to begin with. The bird was only stunned by its impact with the glass. It would have been a whole different story had the bird been dead for four days. Folks, Jesus was raising a dead man back to life. Lazarus was dead. And as often was the case when When Jesus performed miracles such as this, or when he taught the crowds, he was met with mixed uh, mixed reactions. He was loved by some, and he was despised by others. Jesus is divisive. Jesus is divisive. And I certainly don't mean that in a derogatory way, as if Jesus is the opposite of a peacemaker. Jesus is one who promoted peace who taught peace, reached out to his enemies. Yet because of the nature of his ministry, of what he did and what he said, he was met with varied responses, various reactions. Because of his miracles like this one, he he drew crowds. Crowds were fascinated by him. Because of his words and his teachings that often criticized the religious leaders of his day and the religious norms of his day, he was despised by others, hated by others. For some, his, his ministry is captivating. Look back at verse 45, a verse that begins with, therefore, tying this verse to what had just taken place. Therefore, as a result of what Jesus had just done, raising Lazarus from the dead. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. It's a result of this miracle that he had performed, this 
task that he had done, raising a man from the dead. Many believed in him and placed their faith in him. Now, often in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, the Jews are not painted with a very positive picture because of the lack of belief in Jesus, but not so here. Here they are painted very positively. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, who was the sister of Lazarus, and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. And if we look down at verse 48, we also read that as the the Jewish religious council is discussing what has taken place, their concern is that if Jesus goes on like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone will put their faith in him. Everyone will believe that he is someone special, that he is who he says that he is. For some, his ministry is captivating, but for others, his ministry is threatening. For others, his ministry is threatening. Verse 46 begins with the contrasting conjunction, but. In other words, some believed in him, but there were others who did not. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Those that are familiar with the Gospels and conversations that Jesus often had with this group called the Pharisees know that this is not something that those who, who liked Jesus would have done. They wouldn't have, have gone and reported him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a large religious Jewish group who believed in strict adherence to the law. They had equated status before God with, with obedience to the law of God. And so you can imagine how they felt about someone who shows up on the scene and teaches that because of our sin nature, no one can, can live up to the law of God. Rather, the law is, is there to reveal the sin nature within us, to reveal how wicked we really are, how, how short we, we really measure up to God's standard. And there was a history of tension between these Pharisees and Jesus. and These particular Jews who don't believe go to the Pharisees and, and essentially uh, report Jesus. Tell on Jesus for what he's doing in the crowds that, that are following him. Verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here was this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So upon hearing about what Jesus had done, this wasn't their first encounter. As already stated, there was a history of tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. But Upon hearing what had now taken place, the Pharisees go and they call a meeting with the chief priests, or probably from the family of the high priest. They call a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which is the highest judicial body in Israel at the time, responsible for Jewish internal affairs under the umbrella, under the rule of Roman authority. You see... In that day, in Jesus' lifetime, during the time in Jesus was ministering, 
Jews were under, under the rule, under the authority of the Romans. They reported to the Romans. The Romans ruled over them, but they had given them a certain amount of freedom and autonomy to carry on about uh, religious affairs and political affairs as long as things remained peaceful. And at various times in the Gospels and the stories that we read about Jesus and his miracles and the religious leaders of his day questioning him, they certainly felt threatened. The words of Jesus, the commands of Jesus, the boldness of Jesus threatened the popularity and the prestige and the power and the positions of these various religious leaders, but we're introduced here in this particular passage to another reason that they were concerned about Jesus. And we see it here in in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. In other words, there was concern from the Sanhedrin, and from the religious leaders of that day, that if Jesus went on doing these things, that the crowds, the common people, would begin to place their faith in Him, and to look to Him, and to desire Him to be their King, their leader, perhaps even their Savior, who would deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. And as a result, they feared that an uprising might take place as more and more and more people began to to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to listen to Jesus. And as a result, they feared that the Romans would see that as a disruption of peace and then come in and, and take away whatever freedom they had, strip them from their national identity as a people and take control over the religious arena and the political arena, which in that day were closely intertwined among the Jews. And as a result, the freedoms and the positions of the religious leaders would suffer. Some are captivated by Jesus. Others are threatened by Jesus. So I ask you this morning, are you captivated Or are you threatened by Jesus? Are you captivated by Jesus or are you threatened by Jesus? Are you amazed at the words and the teachings and the actions of the Son of God? Or are you threatened by Jesus because He is Lord and He demands total allegiance and devotion and obedience and surrender because of who He is. He is greater than us, worthy of surrender, worthy of sacrifice, worthy of devotion. Are you captivated by this Jesus or are you threatened by this Jesus? You know, our our culture today tends to be sort of indifferent to Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus is was a good man. He did some good things. He, after all, he, he hung out with the poor and the outcast. And taught about loving enemies. Sure, Jesus was a good man. Someone that 
makes sense to pay respects to at Christmas and Easter, even to look at for, for good ethics. But don't worship Him as Lord. Don't like reorient your life around this guy or anything. That would just be a little bit too much, a little bit too uncomfortable. Folks, you and I cannot be indifferent towards Jesus. Jesus claimed to be one with God the Father and He raised a man from the dead. And ultimately, He gave His life to take on the sacrifice, to take on the penalty, the wrath of God that you and I deserve as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. We cannot be indifferent toward that one. And this passage in the following verses set us up for the coming crucifixion of Jesus. Look back at verses 49 and 50. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So Caiaphas, high priest that year, and and more than that year, in fact, he was high priest for 18 years, but spoke up rather abrasively in this council meeting saying, guys, it's better that we get rid of this guy. It's better that he die than the rest of us suffer oppression at the hands of the Romans. In other words, it's time to get rid of him before he gets too popular, before it appears as if an uprising is going to take place. Let's get rid of this man. And for men, the decision to kill Jesus was self-serving. The decision to kill Jesus was self-serving. In other words, because Jesus was a threat, he deserved to die. It didn't matter if he had done anything worthy of death in their eyes or not. But because he was a threat to their own position, their own power, their own freedoms, their own autonomy, it was time to get rid of him. This is where... This passage gets really good. Look back with me at verse 51. He did not say this, talking about Caiaphas, the high priest. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Now don't miss this. Though unaware of it, Caiaphas was speaking incredible spiritual truth about the significance of the sacrifice and the death of Jesus Christ. Like a puppet on a string, he was speaking the truths of God before the people. See, for Caiaphas, it was a good idea to get rid of Jesus physically for the sake of the nation, for the sake of the Jewish leaders, for the sake of their positions. But for God, He had already planned to sacrifice His Son Jesus for the spiritual sake of His people. And not only for the Jews, 
but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. Unaware of it, Caiaphas was speaking the heart of the gospel. For men, the decision to kill Jesus is self-serving, but for God, the decision to kill Jesus was selfless. Selfless. In other words, others serving for the sake of his children. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 3 verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's that exchange that takes place. The sinless one, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on our sin and the wrath of God, the judgment of God that we deserve for falling short of the standard of God. And in exchange, those who believe in Him receive His righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, for God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. For God, the decision to kill Jesus was a selfless act. Caiaphas had no idea the significance of what he was saying as high priest that year. But the writer of this gospel, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew exactly, in hindsight, knew exactly what was being communicated through the word of God. That Jesus was indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That through the death of Christ, those who believe in Him would become the children of God, brought together and made one as the people of God. John knew that Jesus did not die by chance. It wasn't by chance that Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for sinners, nor was it by the will of man that Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for sinners, but it was in the divine plan of God all along that Jesus, at the right time, would become a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners such as you and me. And that leads us to the fourth point that I want us to see from Scripture this morning, that God determined when and how Christ would die. God determined when And how Christ would die. Though Jesus' fate appeared to be in the hands of men, it was not so. Look back at verses 53 and 54, the final two verses that we're going to look at together this morning. So from that day on, they, talking about the Sanhedrin, the the ruling council, they plotted or they, they resolved to take his life. And that day forward, they resolved to take the life of Christ. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Now, don't read this or don't hear this as if Jesus was doomed to die at the hands of men. And so he withdrew in order to hide himself so that he wouldn't die, so that he wouldn't be arrested, so that he wouldn't 
be killed. In fact, there were already multiple attempts prior to this account to arrest and to take the life of Christ recorded right here in John's gospel. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Same chapter, verse 44. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Same chapter, verses 58 and 59. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. Making a bold statement. Not only saying that he existed long before Abraham even existed on earth, 2,000 years prior to the time of Christ, but identifying himself with the God of Israel, Yahweh, stating, in essence, that he is God. At this, verse 59, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Chapter 10 of John, verse 39. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And the image that may come to your mind when you think of somebody so repeatedly eluding those who are trying to seize him, eluding those who are trying to grasp him, may be the image of football here in the South. We think of quarterbacks or running backs that have talents above a common person who worked diligently to, to elude defensive backs and defensive ends and defensive linemen and defensive tackles, names like Johnny Manziel or Trey Mason or Trent Richardson or Darren McFadden. Notice I did have to go a few years further back to, to think of one from my home state, but I did find one. But Jesus wasn't eluding his enemies because he had a certain human talent because he was physically fit or because he spent hours in the weight room each day pumping iron. Now Jesus eluded his enemies because his time had not yet come. No one could force Jesus to the cross. No one could arrest and Kill the Son of God before the right time. When the right time came, it it would happen. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down 
and authority to take it up again. The command I received, this command I received from my father. Moving forward at this point in Jesus' life, the trial would only be a formality. In the eyes of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body with most power among the Jews, he was already guilty. Found as a threat. Someone it would be better to get rid of. But John wants us to see that Jesus' death is part of something far greater. It's part of the divine plan of God. As long ago, God had determined a plan. He had devised a plan and he would execute a plan to rescue sinners of a life ruled by sin and deserving of the judgment of God. So that by faith, they could be forgiven in the eyes of their creator. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. I hope that we see from scripture this morning that the decision to kill Jesus was ultimately God's decision. The decision to kill Jesus was ultimately God's decision, part of his grand and magnificent plan that he had already determined long, long ago. The decision to kill Jesus, ultimately God's decision. I want to leave us this morning with a question as we think about that truth, when we think about it in light of the way it's presented in John chapter 11 this morning, have you recognized the significant plan of the sovereign God? Have you recognized this significant plan, this incredible plan, this life-changing plan, this eternity-altering plan, of the sovereign God. I want to invite us this morning to, to dwell on that truth, to dwell on the gospel story, to dwell on the grace and the mercy and the sovereignty of our Creator. So I want to invite you to, to pray with me and to pray that that our eyes would be open day after day, and particularly this morning, to the significance of this plan, the significance of the gospel story. Let's pray that our eyes would be open, and let's pray that, that the lost in this community would be aware of the gospel story this Easter season. Let's pray that as a church here in the Meadowbrook community, that this would be a place that people hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me now. Father, we do thank you for the gospel story. We thank you for your sovereign plan. We thank you 
that you loved us before the foundation of this world. We thank you that that you are in control. We thank you that you're a God whose mercies are new every morning. And we thank you that you're a God whose grace is sufficient for your people. Lord, we pray that we would be aware of your great grace this morning. Lord, that we would be aware of the significance of, of your story this morning and where it can intersect with ours. Lord, I pray that you would lead us in this time to respond to you, to respond faithfully, to respond in surrender, to respond in praise, to respond in exaltation, to respond in in glorifying the name of Christ. And Lord, we do pray that today and in the coming days that this place, these people that are gathered here this morning that make up Meadowbrook Baptist Church, Lord, that we would be proclaimers of your gospel, proclaimers of your significant story that impacts lives for all of eternity, Lord. So speak to us now, lead us now, that we might be found faithful. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.